Hey there, folks. This is Jeff Benjamin along with Bruce Kelly for The Investment News Podcast. Got another great episode coming at you. We have Jeffrey Kleintop, Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab, to tell us all about what's happening in the world, investments, economics, and otherwise. And our very own Liz Skinner, Special Projects Editor, to keep us up to date and give us the latest on the upcoming women's issue of Investment News. Two heavy hitters, Jeff. Two heavy hitters. That's correct. You are correct, sir. This is a this is a winner for sure. Wake the yep. kids. Hey, we're here with Jeffrey Kleintop, Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing great. It's wonderful to be with you again. Thanks for joining us. We want to talk to you a little bit about the, the global markets, the U.S. markets, the sectors, the COVID, Black Friday. All of the above. I know you know all that stuff well. I'd like you. Can you start off a little bit with a little bit of a perspective on the global markets right now, kind of in context of what's happening in the U.S.? Obviously, the U.S. election. Sure. There's no shortage of things going on that are affecting the markets at the moment. I think one of the most interesting things that's happening is something that's kind of inside of all of it, and that's that the outperformance by the biggest U.S. companies. I think is hiding a change in leadership by the average stock. This may be a surprise, but the average international stock has been outperforming the average U.S. stock this year when you measure it using the equal weighted indexes. That hasn't happened in a long time. You know, leadership tends to last for many years, even a decade before reversing. It usually switches between the U.S. and international stocks at the start of a new cycle. I think we've started a new cycle. If we look back, international stocks outperformed in the 80s, led by Japan, till we got that 91 recession. Then the U.S. stocks outperformed. Then the 01 recession switched it back to international performance, and the 08 recession flipped it back to the U.S. And now, I think we're at the start of a new cycle, and that seems to be switching again to international outperformance, driven by a number of factors we haven't seen in years. You know, it's after a full cycle, outperformance has led to uh, excessive expectations and valuations. They get stretched. And that new cycle is a catalyst to, to start over again. So I'm excited about what I think I'm seeing is a rotation towards international, more cyclically oriented stocks as we move towards 2021. How do you convince U.S. investors, and that sounds like a pretty strong argument right? that you just laid out, but we all know U.S. investors are, are heavily weighted toward U.S. equities. How do you get them to diversify? Because the U.S. market's been pretty strong also, obviously. The U.S. market's done a tremendous job. And usually right when you get the turn in the cycle, usually whatever sector had led or whatever part of the market had been the leadership in the prior cycle tends to fall further. That didn't happen this time because, of course, the, the U.S. tech stocks that have been the leaders for the last cycle were COVID beneficiaries. They were winners. So only really since April, maybe since the global economy might have bottomed, at least from that first round of lockdowns, only since then, we've seen international stocks begin to outperform. I, the way I talk about it is just looking back and remembering these cycles and remembering it's these turning points, the start of a new cycle. And it's debatable. Have we started that new cycle? Will it start you know, later this year, early next year? But I think we're at a turning point in the broad sense of this, leading to stronger performance over the next 10 years or so. And that's really important if you want to keep your portfolio on track, because U.S. performance may be below historical averages. You sound so optimistic and bullish and enthusiastic, which is kind of the way you sound normally when I talk to you, Jeff. But it almost sounds like we don't have a, a global pandemic going on, and we don't have a highly contested 
still not officially resolved presidential election. I mean, how does that factor in? Also, we have a couple of vaccines that are kind of on the horizon. This seems like a pretty disruptive time, but it doesn't sound like that when I hear you talk. What I'm seeing is these lockdowns we're seeing in the near term seem to be effective. Right now, looking for our vantage point in mid-November, looks like those lockdowns in uh, Ireland, which took place around the 20th of October, have really done a tremendous job containing those, that outbreak. Same thing in France, which started a few weeks ago on the 30th of, of October. And so if these near-term lockdowns can work to contain the spread and bridge us until we get to that vaccine sometime in the first half of next year, that can really unlock a, a broader recovery in cyclical stocks that really have only moved sideways since May or June, really haven't fully priced in that economic recovery. So that's why I'm a bit optimistic on that front. Related to the election, I think there's, a, there's an interesting way to think about this historically. Elections have often marked the turning point when outflows from the stock market become inflows as pent-up demand lifts stocks. We've been seeing this play out in the past few weeks, and history says there could be more to come. It's interesting Usually ahead of an election for a year, sometimes two years, we see net outflows. And we see this in the ICI data from mutual funds and ETFs. Investors tend to be pulling money out of stocks. And fascinatingly, for the last three, four, five elections, the election seemed to be the turning point. Didn't seem to matter who won, but that was when we started to see money come back into the marketplace. And that will be a real support for the market next year. Because remembering, it's really been corporate share buybacks that have done all the heavy lifting for the last couple of years to see the, the individual investor come back could give this market a second win. Jeff, uh, just a couple of things. One thing, you know, I've read some, a little bit of research that's saying that the S&P 500 historic valuation is very high right now, but that might be justified because the market is pricing in a rebound in earnings next year when the economy does get ramped back up to whatever percentage speed it, it, it eventually will. What do you think about that? How do you look? How do you look at the S and P five hundred valuation as it sits now, as an, as as a predictor and as a predictor of what's going to happen next year? Yeah, th this year's gains have really been on a lot of PE expansion as earnings growth has has really fallen. Right, earnings have been contracting, but as we look out to next year, we do expect to see a pretty good earnings rebound. That's what analysts are expecting as well. We could actually see a solid gain next year, even as the price earnings multiple contracts, because earnings growth is, is expected to be in the 30% or so range for global companies. And we certainly don't expect that kind of a return for the stock market next year. So that could allow valuations to contract a little bit and let earnings do the heavy lifting. One interesting aspect of next year is that companies in Europe and Asia are expected to have better economic and earnings growth than the US next year for the first time in many, many years. It could lead to an extension of that leadership trend we've started to see here in the month of November. Jeff, what do you see is, let's go post-election here, early next year, driving forces under a Biden administration, kind of attributable to a Biden administration? And the market's gone a long way to pricing in a wave of green-related spending that one of the key priorities of the Biden administration is these environmental issues. And you know, if you take a look at the outperformance by green stocks this year versus traditional energy stocks, Wow, it got to be 80 percentage points over the last four months or so headed into the election. I think that gap probably closes next year a little bit, maybe not entirely. I, I think that we just don't, aren't, aren't likely to see the margins in the Senate required to get carbon taxes or tariffs put in place 
or all the things that would go along with adherence to the, the Paris Climate Agreement. And that means those stocks may have gone a bit far. So I actually think that maybe they've gone a little too far in, in pricing in that kind of a, a green wave, if you will. Other than that, I, I see you know U.S.-China relations continue to be an important issue. But I think the Biden administration is clearly uh, focused on a multilateral approach to cha- changing China's behavior, which means a slower, you know, more transparent process to addressing China uh, rather than sort of policy by tweet. And I think that's maybe going to lead to less volatility to the stock market related to that relationship. Elaborate a little bit on the less volatility part, because we're obviously not going to, I'm, I'm not expecting under a Biden administration as much policy by tweet, as you put it. Do you think that alone with a different president will lead to a less volatile market? Because this has been an extremely volatile market, and it seems like it's this year, it seems like it's been largely pegged to the fact that we're in the middle of an unprecedented pandemic. It doesn't seem like that pandemic is going away on January 21st. So what's your kind of, in terms of volatility, what do you see? Because we probably will have a new president on January 21st. Right. So foreign policy related volatility may ease, but domestic volatility related to this race between infections and a vaccine is certainly going to play out probably day to day in the markets. We know that there are some messenger RNA vaccines in progress that seem to be showing some promising results. We know that we don't have enough manufacturing capacity to get those out and really get them fully disseminated in the first half of the year. It's probably more of a second half story. And that means that race will continue and we'll continue to see these rolling lockdowns, different places. You know, just today, uh, we heard from Michigan, you know, uh, talking about a three-week partial lockdown. So we may continue to hear some of this. And I I think that will create volatility and that's where we'll be focused. But that's sort of maybe a bit different than uh, some of the foreign policy-related concerns that have really been a major factor prior to 2020. I saw an interview you did recently where you talking about Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Those are obviously big days for the retail sector, for really the, the U.S. economy. And they really anchor the fourth quarter. Obviously, I can't see a lot that would impact Cyber Monday, but how does Black Friday make an impact in 2020 when people really aren't shopping and are not, you know, you, I guess you're not supposed not to shopping shop. as much, you know, out definitely. So what, what does Black Friday look like and how does that impact the fourth quarter? You know, uh, Singles Day in China was just a blowout day. Of course, that's looking at online sales. And we know <laughs> what is Singles Day, Jeff? Just tell people what what Singles Day is. <laughs> singles Day, the world's biggest shopping holiday. Of course, invented by Alibaba about eleven years ago. Sort of the opposite of Valentine's Day, where you right. buy things for yourself. A huge e-commerce holiday in Asia. Sales this year were enormous and absolutely eclipsing what we'd normally see on, on the whole Thanksgiving shopping weekend uh, in the U.S. And that's a good sign that the world's strongest consumer in China continues to power the, the world's consumer economy forward. In the U.S., I think what we'll want to see from Black Friday is pretty good online sales. We know U.S.-based retailers have restocked their inventories, uh, whether it's at warehouses for online sales or even perhaps some in-store merchandise, because we've seen the shipping cost of moving a container from Shanghai to Los Angeles, more than double for this year's holiday season to make sure things are in the stores and warehouses for Black Friday and Cyber Monday. So there's a lot of inventory. The biggest risk would be another series of lockdowns. So far, the U.S. has not put in place the restrictions seen in Europe this fall, but new cases are on the rise and some states are considering renewed lockdowns. So 
shutdowns of non-essential retailers would certainly be a blow to uh, to many of these companies uh, ahead of the Christmas season. So we've got to watch out for that. But a strong consumer, important here. You know, we've heard from Walmart and Home Depot and a few others, their online sales are doing well. But those that are more focused on apparel, like say Kohl's, not so well. So that's sort of the dichotomy this Christmas season. Jeff, I don't know how granular, to what granular degree you follow this stuff, but in terms of the lockdowns, are there specific regions of the country that you're looking at and saying, you know, there is a greater likelihood of a lockdown in the Northwest or the Southeast or anything like that? Well, as we look at the U.S. and the probability of of additional lockdowns, the Midwest is certainly seeing the worst in terms of the breakout, but politically less likely to engage in lockdowns than, say, the West Coast, which may be more in line to do that, but they're not quite seeing the same type of breakout. So it's a bit of a balance. And, you know, we are seeing California talk about some new restrictions. Certainly, I, I, Michigan has, uh, you know, just imposed a three partial lockdown. So we're seeing it here and there. It's a bit like what we saw back in March and April, where we saw, you know, about half the states engage in some form of, of lockdown and, and uh, self-isolation, and others didn't. And that probably prolonged the period before we could get a real control over the virus, as opposed to Europe, which just really engaged in aggressive lockdowns fairly quickly. So expect that sort of rolling issue to be the case really all the way through probably the first half of next year. Again, it's that race between infections and the vaccine and then the impact of, of these lockdowns. I think if, they're, if they have an expiration date on them, for example, the ones in France just imposed in November appear to be just for the month of November, given the fact that the case count has come down so sharply. It seems like there's good compliance with that. Certainly hasn't hurt the French stock market, which is up about 20% this month, despite the lockdowns. I think that's key, keeping them fairly short and directed. You can get good compliance and, and an effective and efficient economic outcome. Yeah, that's interesting. If it's, it's part of the psychology of this whole thing, right? If people know that there's a deadline, they will comply perhaps in, in, in a more meaningful way. Yeah, we, we've learned a lot about the effectiveness of different types of lockdowns. And, and you know, they seem to be doing it uh, the best in, in, in a few different countries. I think we're learning from that. Just one more point with Jeff, as we, you know, as we were chatting before we started taping, the last time Jeff, you and I got to speak face to face was in San Diego in August of 2014. And you were at your old firm, LPL, then, and you were just in the process of being, of leaving there and then eventually getting hired by Charles Schwab. Just talk to me about the past, you know, your change in careers, your change from a, you know, a very large firm to LPL to, to an even larger firm. Schwab, a firm with a national global uh, footprint that LPL doesn't have, LPL doesn't want to have, right? They're, they're a behind the scenes partner with advisors. That's how they, they kind of pitch themselves. Charles Schwab is, you know, this huge discount broker with thousands of RIAs using them as a custodian as well with trillions in assets. So just how's the, how's the change gone? What have you learned? What have you, you know, what, what have you learned about yourself? What have you learned about the investment advice business? What's going on with you right now? You know, it's uh, thanks for asking. It's been a a great experience. One of the things that's kept the same is that I'm still speaking to a just wonderful uh, community of of investment advisors, and and it it, you know really is the same folks, and that really is inspiring to me. I love that audience, and I love uh, helping them understand what's going on in the world. For me, one of the one of the unique and, and wonderful things about Schwab is I've got this great team that I work with. So I'm more the, the global picture guy, but I've got Liz Ann Saunders, 
who really does a wonderful job on the U.S. force on the equity side, Kathy Jones, who really is a wonderful chief fixed income analyst. And so we're sort of a team and, and that's great. I was sort of the, you know, the chief strategist of everything uh, at LBL, right. which pulled me in a lot of directions, but mainly I focused a lot of my time on the U.S. Now I have really the opportunity to dig into a lot of unique areas in the emerging markets and around the world that maybe I, I didn't have the opportunity to spend as much time on in the past. And that's really exciting for me. Always learning is very exciting. So I'm really enjoying it a lot. Thanks. That's great. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks. I've had a wonderful time. Thanks for being here. Thanks for helping us out. Good stuff, Jeffrey. My pleasure. Great. Any Anytime you guys want to do this, I'm up for it. Love you guys. All right. Okay, now we have our very own Liz Skinner talking to us about the upcoming women's issue, which I believe publishes today. Liz, how you doing? And tell us about this special issue. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on to talk about our November 30th issue, our women's issue. It's the only time of the year where we focus solely on stories that are about women advisors and about women investors. And the highlight of our issue is we have our brand new 2020 Women to Watch, which is where we kind of highlight 20 women in the advice industry who have been successful, not just in their own careers, but also have been very supportive of other women and of kind of efforts to make the industry diverse as a whole. And so this year, we're giving our Lifetime Achievement Award to Melody Hobson, who is the co-CEO at Ariel Investments. And then we also have a rising star who is probably less known to everyone. Her name is Jennifer Auerbach Rodriguez, and she's from Merrill Lynch. And then for the first time, we're actually giving some special recognition to our former CEO and publisher, Suzanne Syracuse. And we are giving her this award really for all her efforts here and with some other organizations to increase the diversity of the financial advice industry. And then finally, in addition to these awards, we also have stories about some different issues that are really impacting women. And predominantly, we have two great features really on how the pandemic is impacting women even more significantly than men. And in one of them, Sally Krawcheck talks about how more women during the pandemic have lost their jobs than men. And another piece is written by our research director. And we put out a survey and found out that more female advisors are working more hours during this pandemic compared to the male advisors who were surveyed, as well as there are more female advisors that are working 100% from home compared to male advisors. So just getting back to this, the employment number that you cited, there's mm -hmm. more women unemployed. Is that in general in the population or is that in terms of the financial advice or financial services business? In general, there are more women who have lost their jobs during this pandemic, in part because the service industry was right. so hard hit. So it's, it's complete logic as to why it happened. And in fact, it's, it's a lot of women, Hispanic women and African-American women and immigrants that are that take up a lot of those roles 
that have been eliminated. And why is it that you're saying women advisors are working longer, more hours during the Mm -hmm. pandemic than their male counterparts, and they're also working from home? In much greater numbers, it seems. What is can you can you talk about those two points a little bit and how it relates to the pandemic? I guess. Yeah. Well, it, you know, so many of us are working from home now. And right. We all are, of course. Investment news. And you can imagine that in many households, women just take on more of the childcare responsibilities, and so now they are doing their full time jobs at the same time they're doing all the childcare or most of the childcare at home. And that's creating more stress and leads to longer hours and such. I mean, a lot of people are working longer hours just because everything is so different and we're having to take on tasks sitting in our living rooms and around our house. And then anything else uh, about the women to watch this year? So in addition to having many women on our list who have started their own advisory firms and created businesses focusing on kind of different niches, like Kathy Curtis and Julia Carlson are a couple of them this year. Oh, I know Julia. Yeah. Julia's great. She is. She is. I was surprised we hadn't given her this award already when I came across her name on the nomination list. So we're also. Yeah, she's out in the Northwest, right? She's in. I believe Oregon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, She's super smart. She is. And she has created a business very focused on helping women investors. And that is going gangbusters, as well as we're recognizing Shannon Yusey, who is the CEO of Beacon Point Advisors. Oh. So that that firm has like $11 billion in assets. Yeah, that's a big advisory firm. And Jeff, they've been an active, as Beacon Point has made some deals over the yeah, past they, few uh, years, right? Yeah, they just announced a deal a few days ago. They're second. They are, uh, I think they're a private equity-backed firm, so you can right. always expect M&A activity when there's private equity guys involved. They uh, that's why they that's why they put the money in there. Are you seeing Liz more women at, at senior levels in these RIAs at these big RIAs than say five years ago or ten years ago when you were just one of us mere mortals like Jeff and I, just a just a reporter, a scribe here, you know, bent over your keyboard. Have more women risen to the top position in these RIAs, or is it still ninety five percent men? It's still, women are still poorly represented at the top, I would say. That's one of the reasons Shannon Yusey is such a standout, because I, I, I couldn't come up with another woman who is in charge of a larger firm, at least in terms of assets under management, than Shannon. Why do you think that is? Why hasn't there been any marked improvement there? There certainly hasn't been in the in the brokerage business, I mean, you have the the managing partner at Edward Jones is a woman. You know, you have a couple of other senior people in at, in the brokerage world aren't women. Why not in the RIA world? Yeah, a group called Lean In did a, a study with McKinsey recently, and they found that at that very first level, where a woman, where there's there's men and women who are in the financial services profession. If you compare them moving to the next level into management, it's like 
one to three, like one woman for every three man will move into that first level. And frankly, if you can't move into that first level, you can imagine how it whittles down by the time you get to nominating someone to be the CEO. That That's part of it. And, you know, it, there are all kinds of efforts to try to increase mentoring and try to have more recruiting that specifically tries to include female candidates and diverse candidates. And there are efforts being made. We're just really not seeing the numbers shift too much yet. It's interesting to me because, you know, like in the, in the brokerage world, there's plenty of there, there's women advisors, bro, uh, you know, investment advisor reps who have terrific books of business and the like. And there's plenty of female, like we we're just saying, Julie Carlson, you know, there seems to be more women RIA owners and the like, but they, they, the, the culture just hasn't changed where they are, in the, they are increasingly in that top position. There still is that glass ceiling or that old boys club. Exactly. I mean, many have started their own successful firms and they're, you know, some of those firms are growing so that, I mean, it, it's great to see a firm that is doing so well that has been started and led by a woman. But it's just the more traditional firms and, and kind of even if you look at the roll-ups and such, you know, there aren't women leading those. And that's that's something I would love to see. Right. And Liz, I, I think you have a, a clip for us, too. Yeah. So because of the pandemic, we weren't even able to celebrate our last year's Women to Watch until very recently. It was October 16th. We were finally able to have our Women to Watch kind of awards and workshop, which was had actually been scheduled since March. Oh, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Tell us what usually happens with the Women to Watch at Investment News. It's a, it's a big deal, right? I mean, and just tell us the whole, you know, yeah. the, the ceremony around it and then what's changed because of the pandemic. Sure. So the whole Women to Watch process that, that we go through usually includes a luncheon and photo shoot where we try to bring everyone together. And that's really where we get our cover shot. And how many women is this usually? How many people do we focus on? So most of the 20 usually come. We usually put four or five on the cover. And we just have kind of an all morning cover shoot and everyone gets together and meets each other. And it's really been a great tradition. It's usually in New York, although last year we did it in San Francisco. So this year that couldn't happen. So if you if you look at the cover today, you will see a stunning picture of Melody Hobson, which is great, <laughs> but it is, it's not. And who is she married to? So Melody Hobson is married to George Lucas, which is very exciting. And, and he's for a geek like me. I'm a science fiction geek. So he, <laughs> that's a big deal because he's Mr. Star Wars. He created Star Wars for crying out loud. Exactly. So we are hoping that we get to have an in-person celebration for our 2020 women so that we can maybe get to meet George Lucas. Maybe uh, Melody <laughs> will bring her husband to the event. Because <laughs> That'd be fun. Yeah. Many of the women who we do celebrate the awards event do bring their families and colleagues. And it's really, it's a great kind of celebration for these women. But unfortunately, we weren't able to do the in-person right. for our 2019 winners. So we did the best we could and created a nice virtual awards and workshop. And that's what I brought a clip from. Okay, we'd love to hear it. So this is from a discussion that we had about the value of mentorship for women in the industry 
And I think it really shows how mentoring kind of goes in both directions with mentors really learning all kinds of new things from their own mentees. And so this is Judith McGee. She's the CEO and chair of McGee Wealth Management, and she was one of our 2019 Women to Watch. About four years ago, I co-founded the Women's Leadership Alliance, and we have formal mentoring programs. And right now, my mentee is a young advisor out of Washington, D.C., who happens to be Black. And I was amazed at taking this on. It's been such a joy. I find I have so much in common with her. So I always say, what would you think a young Black advisor from Washington, D.C. would have in common with an old white lady in Portland, Oregon? Well, there's a lot. And our stories aren't that different, even though we grew up in different parts of the country. Our values are aligned. You know, it is, I am having an absolute blast being part of her life. Thanks for playing that, Liz. Any idea of what's going to happen with Women to Watch here as we, I know we haven't made any formal plans for 2021 yet, but any expectations about Women to Watch or other events at Investment News as, you know, you are, are so involved with the special projects here? Sure. So for the first half of the year, for the most part, Investment News is planning to do virtual events. And then we would love to go back to doing in-person events for the second half. We're just going to have to see what's happening with the pandemic. But I'd love for everyone who is listening to really think about if there are any women who they work with or they know who have successful careers in the financial advice business and really can nominate them online next June for our 2021 Women to Watch because we're going ahead with all our awards programs. If we have to have virtual events, that's what we'll do. But we uh, want to keep recognizing these women and, and kind of showing some role models for the rest of the industry. Yeah, I got a notice recently from the FSI, the Financial Services Institute, which usually has its annual meeting in January, and they're trying to pull theirs off in July in Orlando, I think. So okay. they're they're planning to have an in-person meeting in July. So which is totally feasible. Like before before the resurgence kind of got so bad, I would have said, "Oh, 100%. Starting May, we're going to be in person again." It's hard to say that right now, given the direction that the country's going in terms of shutting down. Right. Well, you know, fingers crossed with the vaccine and with the various vaccines being approved. So we can hope. We can hope. Liz, thank you so much. You bet. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Hey, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. Of course, because it's Monday, that means there's a new episode of the Investment News Podcast. Uh, We'd like to thank our special guests, Jeffrey Kleintop, the Chief Global Investment Strategist at Schwab, and also our very own Liz Skinner, Special Projects Editor here at Investment News. We also want to make sure we thank our producer, Steve. And if it's a podcast, you can find it at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Folks, leave us a review on Apple, four or five stars, please, and also follow us on Spotify. If you want to shoot us a question or ask us to discuss a topic, we'd love that. You can find us on Twitter. Jeff Benjamin is at Benji Ryder, and me, I'm at BD News Guy. Thanks again for listening. 
and we'll be talking to you next week.